following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Good morning. If you will, please turn to Psalm 136. Psalm 136, that is page number 520, if you are using one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you. So it's... uh, only fair that I start uh, with a, spe- a special announcement this particular Sunday. I began last Sunday with a special announcement, did I not, which I received much flack on, by the way, after the service, because I proceeded to multiple times tell you how much I love you, only then to call you out about things, right? Uh, in fact, the whole rest of that Sunday, I had a meeting right afterwards, and I was being told how much people loved me, and then they were making fun of me. So uh, what I was referencing was uh, just, you know, people being kind and thoughtful in the service, not being a distraction, right, in the service, because I got to spend four weeks sitting out there as Chris was preaching through Ruth, and so I was like, you know, hey, do your best to keep the distractions down. You got kids, they're making noise, take them out. You know, we love you, take them out, right? And then I also, though, mainly talked about uh, people getting up to go to the bathroom and getting water. Remember this? And in the process of, of talking about this, who did I call out publicly but Mr. Aaron Shellhart here? Poor teenage boy up front. The last time I did this, I, I said, you know, I'd gone through the announcement, don't get up, and who's the first person to get up and leave? Aaron Shellhart. Well, I go through it again last time, right? Two minutes after I get done, who's the first person to get up and walk out? Mr. Glenn Tucker. <laughs> He's taken the mantle from Aaron, and Aaron is very thankful. So now you're our example from here on out. That was very good timing. (laughs) Hey, Ed, don't call Glenn in the service, please. I should never give Glenn a heads up that I'm going to call him out publicly. That's what I just learned right there. See if I am ever concerned about your feelings again. Ever. I had to say something. All right. Transitioning from that. Psalm 136. We are going to read it again. You say, that was really long. Why are you reading it again since Jordan just read it to us? Well, I'm doing it again because we're trying to get a point across. Got it? A point across. So this time you're not going to be reading it responsively. You're just going to be listening. I want you to pay careful attention to the flow of the psalm, okay? Just think about what's being said as we're going through and how the psalmist is putting all of this together. So if you will, please look at verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, 
for his steadfast love endures forever, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever, and killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, um, as we take this final Sunday together just to be challenged and encouraged to be thinking about our, our current trajectory and our future plans. Help us to not forget what you have already done. Help us to not forget your goodness that has been shown to us now for many years, that your steadfast love, it really does endure forever. And I pray as we spend our time together this morning just considering this idea in a very different kind of Sunday on a very different day for us, that we will walk out of here encouraged, that we have seen you. Our beliefs about you, our faith in you, it's not just abstract, it's not just, just in propositional truths, but we have actually seen your goodness at work in our lives. Help us to to understand that, and then to be encouraged by that to move forward in confidence that your goodness never changes, your steadfast love, it endures forever, and in that faith, in that confidence, we can, we can walk into whatever the future has for us. And so bless our time together, we ask this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are, first Sunday of September 2016, which means that summer is over. Yay, parents, right? <laughs> School starts Tuesday, and all the teenagers look at me with a blank stare, and I love it. Um, it's hard to believe that the summer has come and gone, isn't it? I mean, this year has flown by. And at, since we're here on this particular um, day and this particular start to a new season, I want to use our time together here at the beginning this morning for you to humor me just a little bit on kind of a weird mental project that I thought would be helpful at this particular season and on this particular moment. So if you need to, as we're doing this, you can close your eyes, you can do whatever you need to do to, to clear your mind and to think very carefully. But I want us to think about three specific things in each of our lives. So this is going to be unique to each person in the room. I'm going to have you build sort of a mental picture of something and I want you to hold that mental picture through each of these three steps or three phases of this little project. You got the, the concept of what we're going to do? Here we go. Step one, I want you to think about where you are right now in your life. Okay, I don't mean right this moment in this room, but I mean in general. Think about where you are in life right now. Uh, and I'll help you with this each time by asking you some questions. The questions will be pretty similar. Uh, number one, how old are you right now? 
uh, where do you work and what do you do for a living there at that particular place of employment? And picture it, picture your coworkers, where you, you work, what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, think about where you live. Think about the city you live in and the home and the street you live on. Can you picture it? Can you see the rooms in your house, the furniture, the street you live on, etc.? Uh, what's your relationship status? Are you single, married, divorced, retired, uh, widowed? What's going on? Retired, I guess, is not a relationship. Uh, <laughs> things are just popping in my head. I'm just saying them, all right? Uh, what's your relationship status right now, today? And how long have you been in that particular state? Um, do you have any kids? If you do, how many children do you have today? What are their ages? What grades are they in? Can you see their school? Can you picture their teachers, the classes they're taking, these kinds of things? If I were to ask you what you were most excited about right this moment, the thing that you're most looking forward to today or in this period of your life, what is it? What's the thing that you're most excited about right now? And then conversely, what is the thing in your life right this moment you are least excited about? thing that you're not really dreading necessarily. It's not necessarily a moment or a, an event. It could be, I guess, but just what is it that you're the least excited about in your life right this moment? Two more questions and we're done here. Is this where you would have seen yourself five years ago? If you could go back in time and talk to yourself five years ago and you told yourself where you were at, would, what would you have thought at that point? Can you, can you picture this? And then finally, on step one here, where would you like to be 5, 10, or 15 years from now? Think to the future. Think how old you are. Think what's coming up in the next 5, 10, 15 years of your life. What, do you, what, do you, what would you like to see happen, okay? If you got it, just like a general at least picture of where you're at right now at this stage in your life, your circumstances, etc. You've got some sense of a picture for this. All right. Here's step number two. I want you to do the same thing again, except this time we're going to back up five years. We're going to back up to the first Sunday of September 2011, and I'm going to ask you the questions again. Try to remember as best you can the answers to these questions five years ago. Okay, So how old were you five years ago? Where did you work at that time, and what did you do there? Can you picture the place you were at? Can you picture the people you were working with, the, the office or the ship or the factory? Where did you live five years ago? What was your residence? What city were you in? Can you see it? Can you see the house? Can you see the furnishings, the decorations? Can you walk through it in your mind's eye? What was your relationship status back then? Were you retired? No. Uh, were, you, <laughs> were you single? Were you married, divorced, widowed? And how long had you been in that state as of five years ago? Did you have kids five years ago? If so, how many kids did you have and what were their ages? What grades were they in? What were they doing in life? Were they having kids? Were you a grandparent? So what was going on in their lives five years ago? Um, this is a tough one. What were you most excited about five years ago? What thing as you were like, if you could put yourself back to, to the fall of 2011, what was the thing in your life you were the most looking forward to? And then conversely, what was the thing you were dreading the most or the least excited about at that stage of your life? And then did either of those things happen? And if they did, were they as good or bad as you thought they would be? 
And if you can't remember the answer to that question, that's probably telling in and of itself. I would just make a side note on that. And then finally, if you can remember back to this point five years ago, fall of, September, fall of 2011, where did you want to be today? What were you thinking would happen in your life five years down the road? And you, know, you can compare that to where you are today, okay? So we've got two pictures now. We've got picture one of where you're at right now. Picture two, hopefully at least some fuzzy sense of what your life was like five years ago. We're going to do this one more time. Step three, I want us to do the same thing, but now you have to think 15 years ago. Some of you are like, I'm not even 15 years old. Some of you can't remember 15 minutes ago. I'm sorry, Mary, but it's all right. You're going to make it, all right? I'll give you one point of reference on this one just because it will make it a little bit easier for us. Remember that at the beginning of September 2001, 9-11 hadn't happened yet. So we were a week away from the terrorist attacks. That seems hard to believe that was 15 years ago now, but that was 15 years ago. So that gives you at least some reference point for remembering what was going on in your life just before 9-11 happened, okay? So maybe that'll help you a little bit as we go through it again. Here we go. Think, how old were you 15 years ago? Where were you working or where were you in school 15 years ago? We have a very young crowd, so probably some of you were in elementary school, unfortunately. Uh, 15 years ago, where were you working or where were you in school? What were you doing there? Can you see it? Can you walk through the office or the classrooms or whatever the case may be at this point? Uh, what uh, city did you live in then? Can you picture your house, your apartment? Can you picture the layout, the furnishings, decorations, etc.? What was your relationship status? Were you single, married, divorced, widowed, and if so, for how long at that point? Did you have any kids or grandkids? Uh, if so, how many? What were their ages at the time? What grades were they in? What were they doing 15 years ago? Uh, what was the thing you were most excited about 15 years ago? Now, that's a hard one, right, for some of you. For me, I actually could remember this one because 15 years ago, I was just beginning seminary. This was my first semester of seminary, so I was still actually excited about it at that point. Uh, <laughs> so I can remember that. What were you most excited about 15 years ago? What, what was, you know, conversely then, the thing you were maybe the least excited about 15 years ago? Again, I have an easy one here because my dad had just died six weeks before this in 2001, so we were still dealing with, you know, helping my mom through that process of her becoming a widow and learning what that was like, and that was no fun. So that was the thing I was least excited about at that stage of life. What about for you? What was it 15 years ago? With either of those things, the thing you were most or least excited about, did either of those things happen the way you thought they would? Were they as good or bad as you thought they would be? Can you even remember? And then finally, if you can do this, this is the toughest of them all, 15 years ago, did you, where did you want to be 15 years from then? <laughs> where did you think you would be in 15 years back in 2001? I'm sure in this room listening to me. That was probably first and foremost in your minds. All right. Three pictures. Today, five years ago, 15 years ago. The purpose of this little exercise is simply to remind us about how much life changes in such a very short period of time. I mean, five years, 10 years, 15 years, unless you're a teenager or below, that, you know, that's nothing. You blink, right? And that time period flies by 
And that's what it felt like. It's felt like to me as I think back over the past 15 years, it's just like a blink. It's like nothing in the grand scheme of our lives. And, our, and unfortunately, I think our tendency is to, once these, these time periods, these big chunks or eras of time in our life have, have flown by us, we tend to really not think about them much anymore other than maybe just a fond memory here or there. I think our tendency is as humans to focus the the perspective of our life really on the now and then on the what's coming here in the very near future. That seems to be where the majority of us spend the majority of our time and energy and thinking. We're thinking about what's going on today, what's coming up, what have I got a plan for? And, and yeah, we have memories. We just don't focus back on them probably the way that we should. And, and I don't necessarily think that's wrong, that we don't focus more on our past. I'm just not always sure that it's, it's balanced. That it's, that it's healthy for us. I think that sometimes by not looking backwards at, at what has transpired in our lives, we tend to forget major things, big things, particularly things that God has done for us, in us, and through us in those time periods. And this is true for us as individuals. It is true for us as families, and it is certainly true for us as a church. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you may have some clue as to where that I'm going with this. I told you last week that I wanted to take these final two Sundays before we go to the two-service transition next week just to prepare us for what's coming. These have not been, neither last week nor this week, uh, these are not sermons per se. If you are used to our normal pattern, my normal pattern of preaching here at Cornerstone, it's we work through a book verse by verse, line by line, beginning to end to understand what God has to say to us. We're going to start that next week when we get into the book of Galatians. We'll just start plowing through that thing, trying to understand it. I'm not doing that today. And I didn't do it last Sunday either. And you say, well, aren't you supposed to? It's kind of what a preacher is supposed to do, right? A pastor is supposed to do. Yeah, it is. It's the normal pattern of what I should do. But every now and then, we come to moments in our life together as a church family that are so significant that I try to take a break every now and then and just talk to us like a family, because that's what we are, okay? It's just a, a family talk where I'm trying to, to address something that's going on in our midst at this very moment. And that's what I'm doing now as we're beginning to make this transition. Last week, I used that time to challenge us to count the cost of what it is we're about to do. We were in Luke 14, the passage where Jesus is giving the, the cost of discipleship, and you see the discipleship comes at a, at a high price. You want to follow Jesus, he demands you give him your all. And this is true of all types of discipleship for us individually or us corporately as a church, and, and I use that to make the point that for us now in our specific context here, pursuing our vision to move forward to try to reach Hampton Roads with the gospel and all the things that are coming with that, that's going to come at a cost. I gave you four things last Sunday that I think that these transitions are going to cost us. It's going to cost us comfort. It's going to cost us convenience. It's going to cost us relationships and cost us resources. And that's probably just to name a few. But I also try to encourage us that that if we're faithful, if we're faithful to do the part that we have been called to do, because there's a lot in this we can't do. We, we don't have any control over or ability to manage. But if we're faithful to be the ministers of Jesus Christ that he has clearly called us to be, then we can be confident of at least one thing. And that is that God will use whatever comes to change us. Whatever it may be, 
whether he uses our two services or he ever allows us to plant a church or whatever may come, I don't know. But I am confident that he will use whatever comes to change us to be more like Jesus. That was our focus last Sunday. Well, this week, I want to encourage us by reminding us of the providential goodness of God that has guided us in all our ways from the day we were first planted all the way until now. We've done a a lot of thinking about and a lot of looking at, you know, where we're at and where we're going here in the days ahead over these past three years. And I certainly don't think that's wrong. I think that's been right. We need to focus ahead and think and plan and, and act. But as I said a few moments ago, when all you do is you look at where you're at and you look ahead, it tends to cause you to become imbalanced. And I don't want us to be imbalanced. And the only way to rebalance us, the only way to, to uh, counteract that is to spend some time drawing our attention back to the past, to what God has already done and how he has already worked in our own history. And so, as I said, this is not a normal sermon. I'm using our time this morning very differently on purpose. And I'm doing it because this particular Sunday is actually a very special day for us, though you wouldn't know it based on anything we've said up to this moment. That is because today is our 15th anniversary as a church. Now, we don't normally draw any attention to that whatsoever. We normally let that pass each year without even referencing it. But today's special. It's one of the fives, right? You got to treat the fives differently. You don't celebrate your fourth anniversary or 11th anniversary. You celebrate the fifth and the 10th and the 15th. Those are the big ones. And so because it's a special day for us, we, would, we want to, to treat it a little different. And not only is it our 15th anniversary as a church, but it is our final Sunday all together here in one room before we go into this new model. And so what I want to do is to just draw our attention back to what God has done here over these past 15 years in, I hope, a very biblical way. Now, we have emphasized, as is very, very clear, Psalm 136 this morning, and that was on purpose. As you look through this psalm, and I'm not going to put any more slides up, so you've got to have your Bibles open the rest of our time together. As you look at this psalm, there are two big main features that should just jump right off the page to you as you read it. The first and most obvious one is the repetition of this one line, for his steadfast love endures forever. There are 26 couplets in this song. A couplet is a two-line stanza that you would use in poetry or in music, okay? 26 couplets in this psalm, and that line is the completion of each and every one of these couplets. And if we're going to grade the psalmist on his efficiency in writing, we're probably going to give him an F. Because it would seem to make more sense, would it not, to simply put down all the first statements, one after the other after the other, and then at the bottom just summarize and say that his steadfast love endures forever. However, I would suggest to you that perhaps efficiency was not what he was going for in this particular psalm. And I think you can get an idea of what it is he is trying to do when you look at the other main feature that jumps out at us here in Psalm 136. If you look at the first line of each of the couplets, something will begin to stand out to you. It's not just in one of them alone. It's as you look at all of them together, you realize then what the author is doing, and Jordan already gave away my thunder. He is recounting how God has worked in Israel in their history. 
Just look at each of the first lines in these 26 verses. And notice that as you go through them, there is a clear progression of events. After some opening comments in verses 1 through 3, he begins to focus on God's actions in creation, right? In verses 4 through 9. So you see things like uh, he's done great wonders, he made the heavens, uh, he spread out the earth above the waters, there's great lights, uh, sun to rule over the day, etc. This is, this is Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2 happening here. And after each of these comments about creation is our refrain for his steadfast love endures forever, then... In the next section, verses 10 to 16, he focuses on God's actions during the Exodus, kind of the next really big moment in the history of the Pentateuch, if we're thinking about this, because Psalm 136 is basically looking at the history of the Pentateuch. So it's the next really big thing. And so you see comments about striking down the firstborn of Egypt, uh, bringing Israel out, dividing the Red Sea, letting Israel pass through, uh, destroying Pharaoh and his host, etc. in that section. So that's the Exodus story. Then in the next section, verses 17 to 22, he focuses on God's actions during the wilderness wanderings and in that beginning stage of conquest, right there at the very end of Deuteronomy. So we're walking right up to the time of Joshua as we're getting to the end of the psalm, and you see that by uh, striking down great kings, killing mighty kings. He names Sihon and Og. Uh, is given the land to Israel as a heritage, etc. This is a history song. Remember, these were sung. This is a this is a history song. But I should probably say it like this: This is a history song, because clearly it's not a true history. There are lots and lots and lots of details being left out of this song, are there not? I mean, you can't really summarize the Pentateuch in like, you know, 15 verses. It just doesn't really work. He doesn't mention Abraham. He doesn't mention lots and lots of other things here. So it's not truly teaching history. Rather, what it is doing is simply reminding the children of Israel of how God has worked in and through them throughout these general eras of their history, always bringing it back to one central point, and that is that in everything that's happened, good and bad, because there was good and bad mixed through all of these events where they're not, the one constant that Israel has seen is that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. So it's not just a history lesson. It's designed to remind them that the truths they know about the God they worship are not just abstract truths that they learned merely on a page. They've seen them. They've lived it. They watched it. And maybe if the people he's writing the song to didn't see it, their forefathers saw it. This is the story of God's dealings with his people, always coming back to an understanding of God's goodness and steadfast love. And so, on the occasion here of our 15th anniversary, I would like to attempt to do the same, though it will clearly not be as good as Psalm 136. I just want to remind us this morning of the providential goodness and steadfast love of God that we have seen here. You say, I haven't been around that long. Well, okay. 
And maybe for you, some of this will be kind of new. You won't have heard some of these things before. And some of you are like, I've heard it a lot of times. Good. It's good to rehearse what God has done. We just want to remember these things, what God has done here at Cornerstone. And to do that, I'm just going to simply, very quickly, look back at four eras in our own history here at Cornerstone and what we have learned from them, always drawing it back, hopefully, to the steadfast love of the Lord here in our midst. As I look back on the history of Cornerstone, I would first draw our attention to our founding and, and our early growth. You know, today is our 15th anniversary. We started the first Sunday of September. That was September 2nd, 2011, or one, wrong decade. Um, but in reality, Cornerstone started before that. It started two or three years before that as a group of people, men, leaders over at Colonial Baptist Church had a desire to plant a church on this side of the city, which back then was empty and growing and was basically brand new. And so they began to pray. Uh, I've told you in the past how I had the opportunity and the ironic providence of God to be a part of that, only in the sense that that summer of 1999, I interned at Colonial, and I got to actually do some of the research and groundwork stuff for that, what they were working on. Had no clue I would ever be a part of this church in any way, shape, or form, but God, again, has an ironic sense of humor sometimes, and there I was. And I was thinking of this week a little bit just about what that was like for them, especially in light of what we're thinking. You know, as they began to want to put their desires into motion, they eventually did what we are going to do. They turned to their people and they said, we want to plant a church. Who's in? Who's in? And after they asked that question, about 50 people, roughly, you know, we're in. And that was the beginning of Cornerstone was 50 people who were willing to sacrifice and walk away from the comfort of a big, comfortable, established church that's got all the programs and the music and the kids' stuff and, oh, you know, all the things that everybody normally looks for in a church, right? They had all of that sitting there in front of them, and they said, we're willing to sacrifice our comfort and our convenience and our relationships and our resources in order to go and be a part of this. And I, I thought, man, you know, that's what we're going to need as well. And I thought also about the other people, the people who stayed behind the rest of Colonial. It was not as if they didn't sacrifice. They had to say goodbye to people they knew and loved. They had to say goodbye to people who were willing to serve and to be a part of what was going on. You think, you know, it's not the hoi polloi who go jump out into church planning. It's the cream of the crop, right? It's the people who really want to go out and serve. So they lost 50 really committed, great people to go. And not only that, they had to sacrifice probably hundreds of thousands of dollars over the next two and a half years to financially support this church. I have no idea. No idea. I'm just taking a guess. From startup to the next two years of financial support, they were committed to this thing. And so after all that sacrifice, the church launched August of that year. It met, started meeting at Corporate Landing Elementary School. How many people are even left in this room who were a part of the school days? Okay, about half of us now. That number's going to keep going down in time. It'll be interesting to see in five years what that looks like uh, around here. They started meeting at Corporate Landing Elementary, Elementary School. No more padded seats. It was metal folding chairs. No more nice sanctuary. It's a, 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 a auditorium covered in what? Dolphins. dolphins. Yes, we will never forget the dolphins. Um, that, was, that was Cornerstone, August of 2001. They met together that first month just that little group on their own, it wasn't open to the public. It was just a time for them to pray, sing, fellowship, learn together. First Sunday of September, September 2nd, 2001, 55 people met for the very first 
It's men, women, and children, by the way, of Cornerstone Bible Church. It wasn't called that back then. Who remembers the first name? Colonial Baptist Church of Oceana. There we go. That was the original name. And what did we see through that time period? I mean, this was exciting. Jamie and I didn't come at the very beginning of that. We came in September of 2002, so a year into it. But we were watching it from uh, uh, Colonial. We were over there at the time. And it was exciting, right? I mean, it was difficult. It was hard. It was hard to show up every week and set up chairs and put up equipment and take down equipment and have to set up a nursery in a room with a chair that looked like a torture device. I've still, after all these years, some of you know what that was, probably. I don't even know what it was. But uh, it was crazy and hard and difficult and amazingly exciting. Watching God take a little group of people and to begin to grow that into a church. And we saw through that time period that that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. God was good in working in people's hearts to make them willing to sacrifice what would have been a very comfortable setup for them to come out here to start a church. Many of them didn't even live on this side of town. They drove just to get this thing started. God was good in working in the people and the leadership there at Colonial to be willing to sacrifice financially and, and uh, service uh, people serving in various capacities so that we could be started. They could reach this side of Hampton Roads with the gospel. And he was good in bringing new families to this young, struggling church plant, many of whom would go on to become dear and faithful parts of this ministry for years. God was good, and it was an exciting time. The second era I would remind us of then this morning is that of tragedy and upheaval. Um, so, you know, we started in September 2001, and we, everything went fine until March of 2004, March 31st specifically. Some of you know the date, some of you do not, but that was the night that we learned that Emily Valentine had died in a car accident. And our pastor was Pastor Tim Valentine, his wife was Becky, uh, Emily was their youngest daughter, she was in college, and she was killed in a, a tragic car accident. And to say, you know, it, it's tragic, we get that, any parent... Just that right there, we could be done. Any parent here understands the tragedy of that moment. But it would take years for us to realize, though, what God had actually done through that moment, because it was in that moment that Cornerstone changed forever. As I've said many times when I've told the story, God ends up using that to cause Pastor Tim, particularly, to rethink everything he believed, as you would probably if you lost a child to rethink everything. Do I really believe this? Is this even important? Why am I focused on this? Why do I focus on that? And through that, God changed this church. Um, I, I don't mean this in any way to sound disrespectful to him, but you know, maybe before we weren't quite as focused on doctrine. After Emily's death, that was all he had to cling to. And it shifted the way we operated and how we focused our ministry in terms of, of our grounding in sound biblical doctrine and in good truth. I'm not saying we weren't grounded in it before, but it was just more so after. Does that make sense? He began to question his philosophy of ministry. Why do we focus on this or that? Why don't we do this instead? Why are we... And slowly but surely, things began to change. Now, for many of you in this room who weren't here before Emily's death, you have no concept of what I'm describing. But I can promise you, if you were here 15 years ago, Cornerstone would look very different. I would look very different just in and of that right there. Um, it was just a different church. It was a very different church. And even though it was a tragic moment, God, God used it to begin to, to move us. And that wasn't exactly a pleasant experience in many respects, not even just referring to Emily's death. 
I'm also referring to the fact that there were a lot of people who were unhappy with things and didn't like where we were going and it wasn't pretty. But God's steadfast love endured and in time we saw the goodness of God in using Emily's death to reorient Cornerstone down a more biblically and theologically robust path, to reorient Cornerstone down a more philosophically healthy path And God used the trials and the hurts of that period to refine us in ways I'm not sure would have happened any other way. I I don't know. I can't speak to that if it would, but I can just look at it now here 11, 12 years after the fact and go, God used a terrible moment. I mean, horrific moment in the life of this church to forever change us, to bring us to where we are today. And in that, I am thankful The third era I would remind us of is that of transition and downturn. Um, Those three next three years after Emily's death took a terrible toll on Pastor Tim. You guys know me. I I, I tend to be um, I tend to be very hesitant to ever try to make pastors out as martyrs because, quite frankly, we have a great life. I, I would never pretend. I meet pastors sometimes. They're like, "Woe is me," and I'm like, "I don't know what church you go to, but my my setup's pretty good." Um, I, I very rarely would say something like I'm about to say, but I will say this because it's true. You, you have no idea until you have sat in that seat, until you have carried that weight of responsibility, what problems can do to a pastor. He feels every one of them. I'm talking corporately, he feels them, and individually, he feels them. And I, I went through the same time period that Pastor Tim went through. I, I was just just a regular church member, right? I was just sitting out there and I knew things were going on. I never felt it. And it wasn't until we came here in 07 that I began to understand the difference of what you feel when you're there and when you're here. I don't know how to describe it to you. It's just different. And after three years of walking this path and the problems that had come out of it and his own grief, um, he couldn't continue any longer, felt he needed to go. And that's how we ended up here. Sorry. So, you know, that was, that was 2007, and that was a major transition. I mean, Pastor Tim, we, everyone loved Pastor Tim. He was like the biggest, cuddliest teddy bear ever, right? You like Ed? Pastor Tim was way better than Ed, right? So, <laughs> right? Way better. You know it. It was a major transition, and it wasn't the only one that came because as he had been going through the end days of that that time period as he was ready to move on, he had begun, begun leading the church to, to make a number of changes that he hadn't been able to do himself. And so as I'm coming in, he's like, you know, here's, the, here's what you can do. And I was great. That was great. I wanted to do those things. I was on board with the changes 110%. We, we changed our name, changed our constitution. We changed our, the way we govern ourselves to a plurality of elders. These were massive changes, and they all occurred within about six months of, of us coming in 2007. And uh, people responded with great a deal of joy and enthusiasm, right? Anyone who was there in 2007, you remember that? Uh, it wasn't a, a particularly pleasant time. We experienced a really steep downturn. I have often joked that I successfully shrunk the church from about 100 to about 65 or so over the next year. But you know what we saw through that? that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever because God was good through that time I couldn't see it at the moment, but I could see it in years later. God was good by refining us down to a committed core group of people that he could take and 
do whatever he wanted to do. We didn't know that at the time. I thought we were just a sinking ship going down, but God, God was good. He, he was good by taking weak, foolish people who had no idea what they were doing, none, and using that weakness to show himself strong. And I say that with 100% conviction. There was not a one of us who had a clue what we were doing. Nothing. If God did not spare this church, it would have died at that time. You may not understand that. You may not feel it. I feel it with every fiber in my body as I think back to that time period. God showed himself strong in our weakness and foolishness. And that leads to our fourth era that I would just remind us of this morning, and that is of momentum and milestones. We thought it was, I thought, I thought it was just going downhill. But starting in about 2009, God began to work. After we had that committed core you guys showed up. It was great, right? From that point on. No, you know, God God was at work in that. You couldn't see it. I couldn't see it when you're right in it. Sometimes you can't see what God is doing in the midst of something. You're you're too deep in. You can't get your head above water to take a look around and get your perspective right. So so had no clue what was happening, but but God was at work and things began to happen, little things. That was it. It was never a big thing. I can't look back and ever point put our finger on and say, this was it. This was what happened. This was what changed. I don't know. I still don't know to this day. Years later, I have no clue. I can name certain things that began to happen. Our, Our people became unified and loved each other and began to genuinely love one another in ways I had never seen before. And I mean, there has been so many people over these past, particularly five, six, seven years who have said, there's something, there's something special here. You guys are like a family. You come in, you're visiting, and people are like, how are you doing? They show love to you, and they care, and great, keep it up. I, I've never been able to, to pinpoint why, but God began to, to bring our hearts and minds together. I think about how the community group model began to be used. There are people in this room this morning who are believers in Jesus Christ because you guys in your various groups began to reach out to them, and, and eventually in time they accepted Christ as Savior. Not only that, but those groups began to care for one another and disciple one another in ways that went beyond anything I would have ever dreamed of or hoped for or imagined. I mean, it used to be, I've joked about this before, it used to be when my inbox was full every week, right? I get no emails now. I get nothing. You can all email me tomorrow, okay, just to make me feel better. Um, I, you know why? Because nobody needs me anymore. And that's good. That's the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be taking care of one another. You don't need to come to, to myself or to Jordan or to any of the other elders. You have a prob- There's a problem in your community group. There's someone who needs help. Help them. Pray with them. Bring the scriptures to them. Teach them. That's the way it's supposed to work. We are all what? Ministers of Jesus Christ cleverly disguised as something else. So be the ministers that you're supposed to be. And people did. That began to happen. I, I think of... of just like that, you know, that on that comment right there, just vision. People under, began to understand that, to buy into that. It changed things as a church family. I think we began to buy into that. That changed things. And I think about some of the stuff that's happened. Just little tangible results, like even just being in this place here. This I mean, this is nothing, and it's the way we want it to be. This is just a tool. But why, what's a little church like us doing with a, a halfway decent little space to meet in and worship and use as a tool for ministry? I don't know. 
Think about the Kessners. I was thinking about that this morning. I'm like the worst guy ever. I, I, I realize that, like, I should not be a pastor for numerous reasons probably, but I have zero faith. I remember when Jared and Sharon first came and said, uh, there you go. I don't, know why, I don't know why that's funny. I think I've said that before. Uh, I remember when they came to us and said, we want to, to try to raise $30,000 so we can go on deputation. Our goal is to go on deputation one year and then leave for Indonesia. And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> that ain't happening. Um, so then we put it out, hey, they need some money, and $30,000 came in. And then they went on deputation. And then, I mean, I am not making this up. I'm not trying to be funny. When they went out and he said, we gotta, we're hoping for a year, I thought it's going to be three minimum. Now, I didn't say that to him because I didn't want to be discouraging, but I was thinking it in the back of my mind. I think I even a couple times tried to, like, you know, let's just dull expectations a little bit as we go here just in case. And a year came, and where are they now? Indonesia. Look around. This is not, we're a little tiny church, and, and we've got missionaries in Indonesia. That is no credit to us, and it's definitely no credit to me. God has showed himself amazing, and as we think even about what's starting next week, look, I'm not trying to make a big deal out of the two servicing because it really isn't the end, and we've said that time and time again. What in the world are we doing? <laughs> what would a little church like us even attempt something like this? Why would we even think about planning a church? I don't really know, but I know this. God has shown himself faithful many, 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 many times before in our midst. His steadfast love has endured through all things. He's shown his goodness to us by providing richly for us in all things. He's gone, shown his goodness to us by expanding our ministry team to be everyone. And he has shown his goodness to us by constantly reminding us that we are still weak and foolish and that we will always need him. He has shown us time and time again here at Cornerstone that his steadfast love endures forever. And this is what I think the psalmist is doing here in Psalm 136. He's trying to remind the children of Israel that not only can they learn about the steadfast love of the Lord simply by reading about it, which I'm not in any way downplaying the significance of Scripture. You know me better than that. He's reminding them, though, that they can actually see it in action and how God has worked in their own story they get to see that their history matches their theology. And I would like to remind you that ours does as well. Well, nothing will ever replace the centrality and sufficiency of Scripture, I hope, here at Cornerstone. And nothing will ever, our story will never even come close to, to matching the importance of the story of God's redemptive plan for drawing a people to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I just want to recount our story this morning, not to exalt ourselves, but simply to remind you that for 15 years now, as of today, we as a people, a little church, one little outpost, right, in God's kingdom, have seen the goodness, the providential, faithful, loving hand of God at work in all types of scenarios, good and bad. And when things are, were clear, when things were murky, when we had plenty, when we had little, through every bend and turn that has come our way, the one unchanging constant in it all has been that the steadfast love of the Lord has endured forever. And that gives us confidence for the future. Because I have no idea what's going to happen next. You had your pictures at the beginning of where you are today, where you were five years ago, where you were 15. I have no idea what we're going to look like in five years. 
or in 10 or in 15 or if we'll even exist at that point. If any of us will be in this room, who knows what this room or any other room will look like in that time. But here's what I do know. Whatever comes, the steadfast love of God will endure. And in that, in that, we commit ourselves to this new phase of ministry here in the life of Cornerstone Bible Church. Will you pray with me? Father, I hope and pray that what we have done this morning has in no way exalted us because it is, it is certainly not that. There is nothing, there is nothing in, in this church that is worthy of praise. If anything, it is a room filled with weak, foolish, broken people that you and your grace have saved, have called to yourself, and have changed. You have grown us and shaped us and you have used us in ways beyond what we would ever have imagined. And if you're done with us today, if this is the end of our story, it would have still been a wonderful story to be a part of and we would give you praise for it. But we don't know. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what the future holds. We, we have desires. We have prayed. We have sought your face. We have made decisions. And I pray now your blessing on those, your guidance. May we not look simply to the visible results that we can see, but to the invisible, the things we can't see, that we will be stretched in our faith, that I will be stretched in my faith, and that you will continue to use a nothing group of people to do things beyond any of our imaginations. Please, Lord, reach this area with the gospel. Help us to be faithful, to push against that rock that we talked about last Sunday, just to be proclaiming Christ to those around us, warning them, teaching them with all wisdom, with that goal that we cannot accomplish, to present them perfect in you. To this we will toil, to this we will work with all the energy that you give us, knowing that it is you working in and through us, you building your kingdom. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your steadfast love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.